All right, it's good to see all of you. Um, so delighted to, for us to gather on Sundays. I look forward to this day every week. Uh, it is so good. Uh, just one of the convictions I have as a pastor is uh, the need that we have to have our faith renewed all the time, uh, every day. Uh, that by reading God's Word, by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, our faith in Christ is renewed. It's not a kind of a set thing that you don't have to touch again, but it's dynamic. It needs to be fed. So I feel like the primary role I have as a pastor is to feed the faith of the flock entrusted to me, and I'm excited about that. So we begin uh, a sermon series in Job today. I'm excited about that. I'm going to do an overview of 42 chapters of Job, if I can get that done. We'll see how that goes. Uh, so I'm excited about that, but today we're in apologetics class, and we're going to talk today about the exclusivity of Christ and the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel? How do we address that? And how do we deal, and I'm going to say this is not really in your handout, <clears throat> excuse me, but I'm going to deal with some of the things that come up in our pluralistic, tolerance-loving culture on the issue of the arrogance of Christians thinking we have the only way to God and uh, how we seem to be unwilling to sign off on a statement like all religions are equally valid, something like that. Um, I think w there's one valid religion and all the rest are demonic. <laughs> so that's, you know, <laughs> I don't think that's going to play well, but it is what I think. Um, how do we say that? You know, is it true? How do we say that? You know, uh, you know uh, those are some of the things we're going to talk about by way of introduction. And then we'll get into the issue doctrinally of those who have never heard the gospel. So let's open in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you for the time we have to study uh, in Bible for Life. I thank you for these that have come, up, uh, come out so early to study your word, and I just pray that you'd bless us, Lord. I feel a, a complete um, lack of competence uh, apart from your spirit. There's nothing that I can do that will make any difference at all for the kingdom unless you bless this time with the moving of the spirit. So I pray that you'd help us to think together well, and Lord, the purpose of this class uh, really is to equip us to be bold witnesses for Christ. Lord, we know that we can't answer every question that people will bring to us. But Lord, we want to assure ourselves uh, of the truth of our faith, uh, first and foremost. And secondly, we want to be able, as best we can, to give good answers to questions that uh, people ask us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is not in your handout. I'm just going to do this out of my head. And uh, you, know, you can take notes or not. Uh, but Acts 4.12 gives one of the key assertions of the exclusivity of Christ in the Bible. I like it uh, perhaps even better than John 14.6. John 14.6, of course, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right? No one comes to the Father. That's a, an, an assertion of absolute exclusivity. Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, Acts 4.12 is perhaps even sharper than that statement. This is when Peter and John were arrested for doing a miracle, uh, healing a, a cripple at uh, the temple, and uh, were hauled up in front of the council, the Jewish council, and they're having to give an account. And, um, you know, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, makes this statement um, about the healing. And then he says, salvation, this is Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other, uh, other name given to men under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. I mean, that's a very, very clear statement, uh, assertion of the exclusivity of, of Christ. There is no other way to be saved. Now, along with that, there's some other verses that come in and kind of buttress some of these things. Um, Paul dealing with um, the Judaizers in, Galat in, the, in Galatians, 
Um, he talks about the role of the law, moral law, the do's and don'ts, even the law of Moses, etc., saying salvation can't come that way. And he said, if salvation could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. So in other words, if you could work your way to God by doing right things, then why did God send his son into the world? So I took that concept and I kind of turned it around and I have this way of thinking and I want to commend it to you. God did not send his only begotten son into the world to die a torturous death on the cross to provide one of many ways to heaven. Let me say it more simply. God didn't send Jesus to provide one of many ways to heaven. He did it because there was no other way. And so I may be uh, cherry picking from the outline we're about to go through. I don't mind. I'm just giving you some thoughts I have on exclusivity right now that are not on your handout. Um, but Jesus, uh, God the Father and God the Son, worked, worked it through in, Ge in Gethsemane on the question, is there another way? Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But if not, may your will be done. The answer is obvious. There is no other way. The only way that the sins of people in the world can be atoned for is by his bloody death. And he said the same to Peter, put your sword away. Uh, how would this scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? There's no other way. And so this is where exclusivity comes from. You just have to understand these aspects of the incarnation and the atonement. And the more you meditate on that in, uh, as a Christian, the more rock solid you, you'll get and that you need to be as you deal with, you know, uh, pluralism and tolerance and open-minded people, um, you know, et cetera, in our present age. You, you need to just be unshakable on this issue. Beyond that, there's the question of arrogance on the part of Christians. Have you, have you sensed that before? People say that we're arrogant in saying that our religion is the only right religion in the world. How would you answer that? How would you answer the charge of arrogance that we believe our religion is the only right, right religion in the world? I would, I would want to try to deconstruct the whole arrogance thing. Let's put it this way. If I invented Christianity in my basement and this was a big rollout, and I was so excited about the thing I concocted and I'm really wanting it for the whole world and I think it's better than any other religion in the world, I could see the arrogance claim. But if I live in Nepal and I think that Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world, that's not arrogant. Just because it's my home country, it is still the highest mountain in the world. It has nothing to do with where I live or my appraisal of it. It's, it's not arrogant and frankly, it really has to be not a Christian that makes that statement because I've been nothing but humbled by this gospel. All it does is humble me all the time. I don't feel arrogant when I come to the cross and the empty tomb. I don't feel arrogant at all. I'm told by the cross and the empty tomb, if I didn't have a savior, I'm going to hell. So I didn't invent Christianity. I, you know, this is not something I made up, as Paul says in Galatians I didn't make this up. This was revealed to me. So there is no claim on arrogance here. The same truth that saved my soul can save yours as well. It's not, it's not a matter of me thinking I'm any better than anyone else. What I'm claiming as I share the gospel with you is that I'm a sinner saved by the works of another. And he offers that to people all over the world. So there is no arrogance here. It just really falls apart if they look at, if this were something I made up, it would stick, I get it. 
but this is something more that I discovered, or we would actually say, actually, he discovered me. And so there's no arrogance in that regard. So I would, I would deal with that. Now, concerning the statement I made that all other religions are demonic, it actually is biblically true. It's not necessarily the wisest thing to say in an evangelistic encounter, but just so you know that we can never sign off on valid type of assertions. No demonic religion is valid. Now, it's a different thing to, uh, to say that I, as an American, think there should be freedom of religion in the marketplace in our country and that I am not in favor of a state-sponsored religion, that I actually think it has a terrible track record. Just look at the history of Christendom in the West, and you'll see that generally when church and state are combined, they do very poorly, and it was really Baptist more than anyone else that, that helped our founding fathers to have this, the, established, the disestablishment clause that there shall be no religion established by the government and upheld by the government. It was freedom uh, for religion, freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, but uh, fundamentally that state is going to stay out of it. We're not going to establish a state, a state church. I mean, all you have to do is look, frankly, east and west. Eastern uh, Roman Empire, Western Roman Empire is bad both sides. Different kinds of bad, but bad. All right, so we're not advocating that, that at all. Um, so we, we do believe all religions are equally valid in America to be practiced, and none should be shut down as long as they follow just the state laws that, you know, that we all have to follow. But that's a different matter. We're t if we're talking about vertically before God, they are not equally valid. Why would I say demonic? Why do I think that all other religions are demonic? What, I mean, what do I mean by that, and, and how, would, how would we make that assertion? They're false gods, okay? Paul said concerning the pagan sacrifices, the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, and I would not have you be partners with demons. These are not accidental things that popped up in human history, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. They're not accidental things that pop. They are concocted. They're intelligently worked out. Mormonism. These things are truly, essentially demonic. And they have a supernatural side to them. They have frequently a supernatural origin to them. And they have been supernaturally helped on. So I do not agree with Gamaliel saying that if a religion prospers and, and flourishes and does well, then it, it must be from God. Islam has done very well, and it's not from God. And so what I, what I would want to say from just in-house here with you folks is we believe that all of the other religions are supernatural and demonic and evil and lead to the destruction, the eternal destruction of their adherents. So therefore, out of love, we want to dissuade people from being Muslims. We want to dissuade people from being Buddhists, etc. That's what we're doing in evangelism. So they're not equally valid, these religions. Now, if you're asking, well, pastor, I get all that, but how do you say that? Well, that's a different matter. You know, what it, 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 what's the approach? It's, it's same, similar to the book of Job and, and counseling. How do you go to a person who's suffering? What do you say to somebody? That's a different matter. But let's still understand the doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence and all that. But then try to find, you know, the best timing, the best way to talk to a suffering person. Those are different matters. So the question is, if you've got, you know, conversation with a coworker, I wouldn't lead out with all religions are demonic. I wouldn't start there. If they ever do say to you, all religions are equally valid, just ask them what they mean. You know, what do you mean by that? 
You know, how do you understand that? Well, all religions are basically teaching the same thing. Are they? I mean, does Islam and Christianity basically teach the same thing about Jesus, for example? Not at all. We believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Almighty God, take on human flesh. They don't believe that. They think he's a prophet, just a prophet. So that's fundamentally different. How people, how sinners are saved, different in those systems. If what we're talking about is the basic kind of do's and don'ts of the second great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself, I think that most religions generally teach the same things, although not exactly the same, but generally the same. I get that. Um, but that, it goes so far beyond that. When it comes to the vertical aspect, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, they are radically different from each other. And so it's just false that all religions basically teach the same thing. So those are just initial comments before we get into this document here. Any questions about pluralism, tolerance, the validity of all religions, things like that? I don't know, honestly, truly what I just said to you. It's in no order, it's been in my head. Some of you may have taken notes. I'm, I'm re being recorded here, so that's helpful. But I just wanted to say this before we get into the question, what about those who haven't heard the gospel? All right, if not, let's go ahead and look at the outline. And so this is obviously clearly related to it. If all religions are equally valid, then you know, we've got this issue. Um, well, let me turn it around. If, as we believe, Christianity is the only religion for the whole world, we have a problem in that a huge number of people have never heard of it. They'd never heard of Jesus. Billions of people. And so if there is one God who made the entire earth, and you've got a huge, significant percentage of the population that's never even heard of Jesus, that seems to be an argument against our faith, doesn't I think? It actually is. So how do we deal with this question, or what about those who have never heard? So here are a bunch of ways... Uh, in the, the bullets here at the start of articulating that. Are those without Christ really lost? What is their true spiritual condition? What is the remedy? Uh, is there really only one remedy? Is it arrogant for Christians to believe we have the only remedy? What is our responsibility toward those without Christ? How should we feel about their plight? What should we do about their plight? So deeper questions beyond that. What about those who have never heard of Christ? Are they lost? And, and if we keep zeroing in even more problematic, what about those who die never having heard of Christ? Like a missionary gets to a certain locality, begins to preach, people start to understand the message, they ask a question, my grandfather died last year before you got here. What about that? There's nothing can be done, person dead, but it's a doctrinal or theological issue. All right, if God's almighty God, how do we understand somebody living their whole life and then they die before the missionaries got to town, how do we understand that? What about those who die never having, having heard of Christ? Are they lost eternally? Is it possible, as some say, that they might have some, some kind of a second chance to hear the gospel after they die? Uh, what should missionaries tell new converts in some previously unreached tribe about their dead ancestors? What answer can we give to the anguished, probing questions about them? Are they in hell? How can we understand the character of God in all this? Is it just and loving for God to condemn people to hell who've never heard of Christ? These are all related to this question, this topic. So this is a theological battle zone, for those of you who don't know that, what isn't? It's kind of like I was talking to Ron, who's a medical doctor, it's like, is there any part of the body that's free from disease? Is there? Uh, no, all right, so there's no bodily system for which there are no diseases? 
All right, so we would have to then take the body of theology and say the same is true of that. There is no truth asserted from the scriptures that isn't contravened, uh, you know, contradicted uh, at some point. Satan questions everything. He attacks all of theology, so he attacks uh, this as well. So uh, what, let's look at some of the theological issues that come up here. Exclusivism. Only those who consciously place their faith in the Christ of the Bible are saved. And we have no biblical grounds to expect that to happen apart from human messengers proclaiming the gospel. That is the view I hold. That's the view I'm teaching this morning. Okay? Then there's universalism, uh, which is the denial uh, either that there is a hell or that anyone will spend eternity in conscious torment in hell. So that's universalism. Everybody will be saved. There is no hell, or there is, if there is, there's no one in it. Pluralism is the idea that all religions are equally valid ways to make it to heaven and avoid hell. Pluralism. Inclusivism, conscious faith in Jesus Christ is not absolutely necessary for salvation. God may actually use general revelation to save people. So this would be kind of the good moral person who's never heard of Jesus, and they are following their own inner light better than, than, than I don't know, the passing grade, whatever that is. And, and they go to heaven because they are um, generally moral people. That's inclusivism. Accessibilism, God is able to get the gospel to the hearts of people without using a human messenger. All right, so these are all different ideas. The, the fact that God can send angels, for example, you know, to, to proclaim the gospel. So th this is what's in front of us um, now. So here I'm going to make these six assertions uh, that I think are biblically true. Those without Christ are lost. Secondly, there is no way for sinners to be saved apart from the shed blood of Christ. Thirdly, there is no salvation apart from conscious faith in Christ. Fourth, the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Fifth, believers are responsible for the proclamation of the gospel. And then six, God is sovereign over the entire mission enterprise, guaranteeing its success. So these are the six assertions I would make to kind of address this question. So those without Christ are lost. That's the first one. Um, when I was a new Christian, uh, I'd been a Christian for about a year and a half, I went on a Campus Crusade for Christ summer project. And we were in my hometown of Boston sharing the gospel. It was the first time I'd ever done public preaching of the gospel. It was in Boston Common with a microphone sharing my testimony, not far from my alma mater at MIT. People just walking by, getting on the tee, and they couldn't care less. Uh, but I was super nervous. I'll never forget that. Um, right near Park Street Church. Um, come to find out, my uh, radio mentor, John MacArthur, was uh, at Tremont Temple Baptist Church that very evening. And so I got done and went and heard him. It was amazing. And there were tons and tons and tons of people there. And it was just a Q&A. He didn't have a message, whatever. He just answered questions. So I got up and I got in line and got my question. And this was the very question. See, I was getting ready for my BFL class decades later. <laughs> what about those who have never heard the gospel? It's the kind of thing that people ask when they're new Christians. <laughs> but maybe people still keep asking them long after you've been a Christian. So... I'll never forget how he began his answer. He said, well, you want to say they're fine, don't you? I mean, that's the instinct. You want to say that they're fine. But if they're fine, then why preach the gospel to them? Well, why send missionaries to them? He said, actually, the statistics are very poor in evangelism and missions. Most people here reject. So all you did was bring destruction to that village. 
It was fine before you got there. But that's not what the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So fundamentally, the darkness, the lostness of the world is essential to the whole missionary enterprise. We have to believe that if we don't get the gospel to them, they are lost. And there are clear testimonies of Scripture concerning the condition of those uh, without Christ. Ephesians 2 says that they're dead in their transgressions and sins. They're without hope and without God in the world. Romans 1 addresses the pagan living in nature, saying that they are without excuse. It's Romans 1, 20 and 21. All right, so Romans 1 ad addresses what's generally called natural theology, what you, can, what you can gain by looking at nature, at sunrises and sunsets and soaring eagles and the crashing waves of the, of, of the sea and watching a, a human baby being born and, and just life, just everything. As you look around and you see this, the marvels, Romans 1 tells you that creation clearly proclaims that there is a creator, there's a powerful God, his invisible, his, his existence and his invisible attributes are clearly seen in nature, okay? Uh, being seen from what has been made. But look at the next phrase, so that men are without excuse. There's no excuse for them. Now, because of that, Romans 1 just sets aside the possibility of there being a righteous pagan living somewhere in, um, you know, in some island somewhere who is innocent. All right, they, as they look around, they glean from nature the fact that there is a God, but they violate his teachings. Romans 2 talks about the internal testimony um, of the law. Romans 2, the moralist and law-abiding Jew is condemned. Romans 2.15, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. So in other words, those individuals have an imprint of the moral law in their conscience, and they sometimes follow it and sometimes don't. And their conscience points the finger at them and accuses them, but sometimes their conscience approves of their behavior, back and forth. At any rate, Romans 1 and 2 together sets aside any possibility of individuals who look around and see nature and who feel the weight of that moral law and understand that there's a creator ever being saved thereby. They're only condemned by it. So what that means is we would refute anyone that says, are you telling me that people go to hell just because they've never heard of Jesus? No, we're not saying that. They go to hell because they sin, not because they haven't heard of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's very different. They have sinned. They have violated their conscience. They have violated the, the existence of this moral creator whose evidence is around them every day. That's why they're condemned, not because they haven't heard of Jesus. Does that make sense? So we just you have to set, separate them out. People who die, never having heard of Jesus, die and they're condemned because of their sins. So that would be the answer to the person who asked the missionary, what about my grandfather who died last year? Now, one thing I want to say is I never, ever make specific assertions about specific individuals being in hell, ever. I just don't think we have biblical warrant for that. Instead, we are to teach the doctrine of the gospel, the doctrine of what the fruit of the gospel looks like in someone's life, all of those truths, but we don't specifically apply them to individuals making pronouncements about their eternal state if it's hell. I think we can do it if it's heaven because you know we have uh, biblical warrant 
for people living openly and fruitfully, uh, saying when they die, they're in heaven. Other than that, you really can't do a Christian funeral, which I did yesterday. I mean, you can't, I mean, uh, imagine me as a pastor, get up and say, I don't know, hope it worked out. That would be very discouraging, and I don't think it's biblical. But the opposite isn't the same. Um, and so, I, and that's just my opinion. Others would say, you can imagine somebody lived a corrupt life, they're wicked, then they die in their sins, we can say they're in hell. It's like, well, I can understand why you would say that. It is logical. I just don't think it's our place. I just think that the condemnation of a soul to eternal torment in hell is something that's given to Jesus to do. That's his prerogative. He is the son of man, and he has the right to judge um, the world. But we don't back off from the doctrine at all. And I speak as somebody whose family is, for the most part, lost, and some of them have died. So, you know, I just uh, refrain uh, from that. At any rate, Romans 1 and 2 sets aside any possibility of the righteous, moral, kind of pagan out there. All right. Now, I want you to know, in this handout, I don't really think I, I go into this. Maybe I do. I don't remember. But um, I, I, I have a different theology for infants who die or embryos or humans that die not having reached what some people call an age of accountability. I know that that also is controversial. <clears throat> but the reason I, I make this assertion is that all of the depictions of Judgment Day have to do with the court-seated books open and people judged according to their works, not just because they're human, uh, but because of that the they have actually sinned. And so therefore, when Paul says in Romans 7, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. In other words, as soon as I understood the moral law, I violated it. So I think there are some that just don't understand the moral law. They don't understand that sunrises and sunsets mean there's a creator and that creator has a certain moral power and he wants you to do certain things and not do certain other things and you ought to live a certain way. They don't know any of that. And if they die in infancy, I just feel that they are, just as the sin of Adam was ascribed to them apart from their will, so also the righteousness of Christ the same. Others disagree, I get it. Um, uh, I will say infant damnation is not one of the popular topics there's ever been in theology. Uh, so if you wanna wade into that and you know, go for it, generally I stay away from infant damnation, but I, I believe that and what I just told you. So what I'm asserting here is for people who are old enough to understand um, the significance of the moral creation they see with their eyes and of the testimony of their heart of moral laws. They violate it. They sin. That's what I'm saying. Luke 12, 47, 48. So I think that's a key text on the idea of we are held responsible in proportion to the knowledge God gives us. So the more knowledge he gives you, the more you're accountable for. Therefore, I've made this statement before, the most terrifying place, providentially, to go to hell from is a good Christian family, okay? So you were raised with good Christian parents, you got the gospel from infancy, you were brought to a good church, you had lots of moral influences, and you rebelled against all that. Look at all the knowledge you had. And there are people like that. It's very scary for them. So there's a, a very strong responsibility for children growing up in good families who are hearing the gospel from infancy to follow Christ. We can't make them do it. All we can do is, is, is proclaim. But I do believe uh, in this idea of gradations of punishment. Not everybody is equally guilty before God. Without a Savior, someday they will hear these dreadful words. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's point one. Secondly, there is no way for sinners to be saved apart from the shed blood of Christ. Let me, let me say one thing. 
Uh, you can discern from creation that there is a creator God. One thing you can't discern from creation is that he is triune, that he has a son, that the son was incarnate by the Virgin Mary. We'll get to all that. I'm just saying natural theology will not bring you to that point. That's why you have to have messengers, you have to have missions. All right, so we'll get to that point, but I just want to say that. There is no way for sinners to be saved apart from the shed blood of Christ. There is a remedy. Lost sinners can be saved. So we should be thankful that there actually is a salvation. There actually is a gospel. We shouldn't assume, well, of course there's going to be one. There isn't one for fallen angels called demons. There is no gospel for them. There's no, no salvation for them. There's no message. There's no hope for them to be reclaimed from their rebellion. They're lost. They're going to hell. You just see on the text there, I just read, depart from me who are cursed into what? The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, it is a false teaching that the devil is in hell now and the demons are in hell and it's almost like their native habitat and all that. No, that's their punishment at the end of the age. They're not there now. So they, they're terrified of it, actually. Terrified of it. Because it's torment. All right, so there is, no, there is a remedy. Thank God there is a gospel. But there is one and only one God, and there is one and only one gospel. Embrace that, okay? That's the whole point of our teaching today. There is one and only one God, and there is one and only one plan of salvation. This is it. This is the only one for the world. Uh, as we said about Gethsemane, there is no other way. I won't go back over that again. He said, not my will, but yours be done. There is no other way than Jesus drink the cup. And as he said, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And so that, that was the whole point of the animal sacrificial system, to teach that lesson again and again and again. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Um, that our, our sins deserve, deserve death, the death penalty. All right, so theological reflection of this truth is clear. We've already read this. I'll read it again. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other salvation. This is the only way. Third point. There is no salvation apart from conscious faith in Christ. All right, so we're, here we're setting aside Jesus saving people who have never heard of him. Again, not counting infants, not counting those who can't understand the gospel. Uh, you know, there, there, there is no benefit that comes concerning the shed blood of Christ to a person who's never heard the gospel. Uh, John Murray gave us two steps, redemption accomplished and applied. So you think about the Passover, the blood of the Passover lamb was shed and then painted. You think about the painting of the blood on the doorpost and lintel of the Jewish homes. And when the angel saw the blood, the applied blood, he passed over. So the idea is the blood has to be shed and then has to be applied. The first is the great work of the second person of the Trinity. The, the second is the great work of the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit's job is to apply the shed blood of Jesus to the elect scattered throughout the world. That's what he does, and he never misses anyone. He is very good at his job. He is as good at, at, at what he does as Jesus was at what he did. And so redemption accomplished and applied has to be applied. No one receives salvation apart from conscious faith in the blood of Christ. Someone read this for us, Romans 3, 23 to 25. All right, you see that? Propitiation, that's the setting aside of the wrath of God, the just wrath of God concerning us by the payment of a blood sacrifice. That's what propitiation is. There is none of that apart from faith. It, is, it says propitiation through faith in his blood. All right, now we know faith comes from hearing. We'll get to all that, but you have to hear and believe, and in that comes propitiation, forgiveness of sins.
Galatians 2, 15-17, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because uh, by observing the law, no one will be justified. And then he says in verse 17, we seek to be justified in Christ. There is no justification. In this case, simply justification equals forgiveness of sins or a right relationship with God. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. There's no forgiveness apart from faith in Christ. Clear teaching. So therefore, being a person of faith, have you ever heard that expression, is not enough. Uh, you know, faith is not enough. Faith in Christ is what's required. So, all right, uh, the concept of an anonymous Christian that some theologians have taught us about. <laughs> He's a Christian, he just doesn't know it. All right, <laughs> that's not going to work, that's not true, okay? Uh, the Old Testament era has ended, all salvation comes directly through faith in Christ. So if you cite Old Testament examples, like Melchizedek, some of these other things that people, are, people cite, um, we need to understand that with the coming of Christ and with his, his physical life on earth and his death, resurrection, we're in a whole new era now. Everything has changed now. So Acts 17, 30 and 31, um, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So that beginning, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, do you see that? That but now, so we're in a new era now, and look what it says, he commands all people everywhere to repent and have faith in Christ. The gospel is something to be obeyed. It is definitely something to be believed, but it's also something to be obeyed. We come as messengers of the God of the universe, the King of the universe, with a command from the King and a promise. All of your sins will be wiped away. Amnesty, it's a day of amnesty, if you repent and believe in the Son of God. But you must, so it's a command. So we should have confidence when we evangelize, right? We're not, we shouldn't be weak and wimpy and afraid what people will think. We are ambassadors of the omnipotent King of the universe who's giving a gracious offer to sinners, rebels, to give up their rebellion, full forgiveness of past, present, and future sins, and a welcome into the family of God. Now, that's incredible, but it is a command from the king to repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. All right? All right, fourth, the gospel must be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. The gospel must be proclaimed. It's Romans 10, 13, and 15. Yeah, I would say Romans 10, 13, and 15 is the greatest apologetic for missions in the Bible. It's the clearest uh, defense of why we send missionaries out, why we should support them financially, why we should pray for them, why we should ourselves consider going and being among them, uh, etc. Now, it's set in a bunch of uh, rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions are questions that are asked to create a, an effect, for which the answer is usually obviously known by people. So if you, it, all of these questions assume the answer no. Can anyone call on someone they don't believe in? That's the way that the question is, is written. Obviously not. You wouldn't call on someone you haven't believed in. That's what Paul's saying. Can anyone believe in someone of whom they've never heard? Obviously not. No. Well, can anyone hear something without someone telling them? Obviously no. 
Can anyone tell them without being sent? No. So all of these things then can be even intensified. <clears throat> we, could, we could intensify. It is actually impossible for anyone to be saved without calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. That's his logic. It is impossible to be saved without calling on the name of the Lord. And it is impossible for anyone to call on Jesus if they don't first believe in him. And it is impossible for anyone to believe in Jesus if they don't first hear of him. And it is impossible for anyone to hear of Jesus without someone telling them. And it is impossible for anyone to tell them without first being sent. And then he adds in verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So it is when the words of the gospel are proclaimed that faith can rise up and meet those words and, and embrace them and the soul is justified. Forgiveness happens at that moment. So it could happen by reading. Someone can read a Bible and believe. They don't have to hear it in their ear. Uh, as Ron said, there are lots of modalities by which the gospel can get out these days. It's amazing the technology. People have, I mean, they have digital technology all over the earth. And so it, you know, it's going on every day. But the triggering moment is the gospel, the words of the gospel are the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's power in the words. And what are the words? It's basically a biography of Jesus the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, all that, the things that, that tell us that God exists and that he has a moral claim on us, that we have sinned, that we have violated the laws of God, we stand under the judgment of God, we need a Savior, Jesus is the Savior, he was born of the Virgin Mary, lived such and such a life, did these miracles, did these teachings. There's a biography of Jesus. There's four of them in the New Testament. You don't look them that way, but they are biographies. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They give you the facts of Jesus' life. You get that across. You communicate who Jesus was. And then, sorry, then um, you call on them to believe. So they need information. That's true. Now, if you're dealing with people that have heard the gospel and have even been uh, like churchians rather than Christians, it's, it's a different matter. And at that point, you want to start getting into what fruit of regeneration looks like. What are the marks of regeneration? What are we actually looking for in someone's soul? So I agree with you there. You know, if people just say, like in a Muslim context, I believe in God slash Allah and all that, we're really zeroing in on the person of Christ. We know that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, when Paul says Lord, he's meaning Jesus. Jesus is Lord, because you're going to confess that that if you believe in your heart, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? What do those words mean? Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? He's just a very powerful being. Is that what that means? Not to the Jews that didn't mean. What does it mean? Jesus is Lord. I'm sorry? Yeah, he is. Yeah, highest. Of, he's God. Like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that. Hebrews 1 says that. It ascribes it to Jesus. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. That's God the Father saying that to Jesus. Jesus is the one who did that. Or as John 1 says, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That's Jesus. So no, you don't believe in him until now. Maybe you believe in him now as you're hearing about him, but we believe that there was a man who lived 2,000 years ago who actually was God, the creator of the universe, in the flesh, who ate and drank and slept and lived and died and rose again, that one. 
And if you call on his name and believe that he is God, you will be saved. That's the gospel, right? That's what we're talking about here. And so fundamentally, we have to get that message out, all right? Believers are responsible, therefore, for the proclamation of the gospel. There are five, at least five, great commissions. The most famous is Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's most famous. Uh, but Mark has its own version. Luke has its own version. John has its own version. Um, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So this is a major theme, a major um, ministry that's been entrusted to the church. The ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. Well, I'll tell you what, those are very powerful words. And I would commend the whole chapter, especially the second half of 2 Corinthians 5, as one of the greatest detailed unfoldings and articulations of our responsibility <clears throat> to be active in evangelism in the whole Bible. The love of Christ compels us, constrains us. We're convinced that just as one died for all, so all died in him. And we, he died so that we wouldn't live for ourselves anymore, but for him who died for them. And there's just a, a whole bunch of persuasion, and it culminates in that statement. All right? We are God's ambassadors. Isn't that powerful? As though God were making his appeal through us. Isn't that powerful? Indwelt with the Holy Spirit, God the Father is pleading with people to be reconciled to God. It's powerful. And so that's our ministry entrusted to us. What are our responsibilities then to those who have never heard the gospel? Well, we're supposed to be heartbroken for them. I think that sorrow and grief and weeping and you know, just being burdened with the condemnation of the loss is for the living. I don't see any evidence of it in eternity. None. There's no death, mourning, crying, or pain in eternity. But here and now, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Paul weeps over lost Jews. And so I think historically, a burden, emotional burden for the loss has been a great incentive to missions and evangelism. And we should ask for it. If we don't feel it in our hearts, we should say, God, would you change my hard heart and help me to care about lost people around me? That's, I think, the impetus of sorrow. So there should be a mourning over it. We should be in prayer for them. There is one verse in particular. I don't know if there are others. I haven't found any others, but one verse is enough that we should pray for lost people to be saved. You're like, well, of course. Well, I'm not an of course person. I try to draw everything to text of scripture, but this is one I found. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. So that's Romans 10, 1, and that's enough for me. We should pray for lost people that they may be saved. <clears throat> we should also pray that the word of God would spread rapidly and be held in honor, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. So, so, Ron, that's that verse you and I were talking about the other day. There, we, we should desire for God, the gospel to do very well. We should pray that it would just explode in an unreached people group and just spread rapidly so that other groups around it would hear through them. That's what we should be praying for that. We should make plans and use means, as William Carey said, for the spreading of the gospel to those who have never heard. We should have mission agencies that strategize and, and allocate funds and make, you know, make plans. <clears throat> we should lay down our lives in getting them the gospel, and we should be willing to suffer for the spread of the gospel. Paul said, and now compelled by the Spirit, 
I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Do you not see that? That's marvelous, amazing. What is the Spirit doing? Well, he's warning Paul and compelling him. He's warning him to what end? What's he warning him about? What does the text say that the Spirit's warning him about? Suffering. You're going to suffer. But what else is the Spirit doing with Paul? Compelling him to go. I find that interesting. So don't expect it to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's going, there's going to be suffering involved. But the Spirit compels us. However, Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying in the gospel of God's grace. I really do believe that our rewards and our, our different, differentiated glory in heaven is based on how much we're willing to suffer in this world for Christ and for the gospel. I, I think it really does come down to that. Suffering servanthood. Jesus said, you want to sit at my right and my left? Those places are not for me to grant, but if you want them, you better serve. You better think of yourself as nothing compared to others, and then this text and others tell me you have to be willing to suffer. You know, you say, well, most of us really aren't. Well, I understand. The overwhelming majority of the redeemed in heaven will be average redeemed people in heaven, and they'll be happy to be there, and they'll be glorious, and they'll have some good works to show. But there are some heroes and heroines who did amazing things for the gospel and for the glory of God. And you're not dead yet. You still could do some of them, you know? So you think about, wow, I mean, what could I do? Think, think like that. Go with that one. Wow, what could I still do with my life? That's the best thing I can do as a pastor is spur you on toward that. All right, what about the role of angels? Could God send angels to share the gospel? Well, has God sent angels to share the gospel? I won't leave it to you. The answer is yes. The night that Jesus was born... An angel came, and the glory of the Lord shone around, and he said to the shepherds, Today, in the city of David, a Savior is born for you. He is Christ the Lord. That sounds like the gospel to me. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. If he's going to do that, why doesn't he just keep on doing that? I think that would be phenomenal. How well would the angels do? Fearless. Trust me. Fearless. Remember all the soldiers outside Jesus' tomb? Angel comes down, rolls back the stone, and sits on it. All right? Not very concerned about the Roman soldiers. Why? Because they're shaking with fear and became like dead men. They're afraid of him. He's not afraid of them. And he proclaimed to the women, he's not here, he has risen. So that's an aspect of the gospel. Yes, angels can do this. And in the book of Revelation, it, it speaks of an angel. Now, Revelation is very difficult to interpret. But there is an angel in mid-heaven proclaiming the eternal gospel to all nations. Like, then why the IMB? <laughs> Why us? Because he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what I want to say. We can't, the IMB can't say, tell you what, let's give these people groups to the angels. We're going to go after these, all right? We, we have no right to expect angelic proclamation of the gospel. That's the way I want to phrase it. No right to expect it or rely on it or excuse ourselves from duty because of it. Will we get to heaven and find out God may have sent angels? Yes, it's not unbiblical. He may have done that, but it's not his normal way. So, like, well, pastor, I wanted you to shut that angel thing down. I couldn't. There are so many verses the other way. God can and does use angels as messengers. Frankly, that's what the word means. Messenger. Angelos is a messenger. So a sense of urgency is appropriate, but not so far as to forget God. We should have urgency but I don't like a kind of a faithless urgency that seems to forget that God is sovereign over this whole thing. I think we should urge passionately. 
but I don't think we should forget that God knows exactly what he's doing. He is sovereign. He is sovereign to elect people for salvation, and they will most certainly be saved. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the creation of the, of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love. He predestined us. Romans 8, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. That's evangelism in there. There's an external call of some messenger getting you the gospel information and an internal call of the Holy Spirit corroborating that and testifying that it's true. Those go together. And so they are called. Everyone predestined gets called. So I think that means a mission's endeavor is going to be successful. Does that make us lazy? It shouldn't. It should actually motivate us. The money we send is going to be well spent. The people we send are going to go and be effective. We're trusting in that. We're not going to say, oh, let God do it. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And Paul said this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul's out there looking for one category of person, unconverted elect. The one thing we've noticed about unconverted people they don't have little E's on their forehead to tell us who the elect are. They're just mixed in. And so our job is to just spread the gospel as widely as we can. And then the ones who respond, who come, are the ones that God is working in. That's how it works. And, and there's a lot of suffering. Most of the people who here reject. And they f sometimes reject by putting pain on you, punishing you and being miserable to you and unkind. And we have to be willing to pay that price. All right, the only way we can know who the elect are is how they respond to the gospel message. First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's election. How do we know that? How do we know that you're elect, O Thessalonians? Well, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with the power of the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You turned to God from idols. You changed your life. Things changed when the gospel came. That's how we know. So I can look at brothers and sisters in this church and, and just say, I know that you're elect, based on this text. I, I know that I could be wrong. We do entrance, the elders do entrance interviews. I've actually said this to people. I said, it's no big deal to fool me. <laughs> you don't get anything for it on Judgment Day, but I'll accept if your story's good, we'll accept you. And then if you live like that good story, we'll accept you all the more. And if in the end you deceived us all, you've only just deceived yourself. My job is to preach warnings and, you know, just preach the text and make sure if you're deceiving yourself, you're at a place where you'll hear that that's a bad thing to do, what it looks like when you deceive yourself, etc. I want you to hear that kind of thing, but I'm just going to accept your testimony for what it's worth. You know, I'm going to accept it. And, and I won't have doubts about it. If you act like a Christian, you say I'm a Christian, I'll believe you. Um, and so we can say that, but the ultimate proof is how you lived in your life. God is sovereign in giving the gospel to whom he chooses. God is sovereign in getting the, he has delivery systems we can't even imagine, apart from the angels. He can motivate, he can put a burning desire in someone's heart and then open doors and get them there. He has no problem doing that. And he does do that all the time. He is sovereign in this thing. He can get the gospel anywhere he wants any time. He raises up and compels labors for the harvest field. Paul says, compelled by the Spirit. We talked about that earlier. He also guides. I didn't uh, uh, develop it, but he guides 
missionary endeavors by the Spirit. Like in Acts 16, they're blocked from going to Asia, they're blocked in this direction, blocked, and he gets them over to Macedonia. He knows how to do that. He is sovereign over this whole thing. And he is sovereign in preparing both sides of the equation and matching them up. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. You know what's so exciting? is to study how God prepares a people to hear the gospel years before the messengers ever got there. It's really exciting how God does that. Or even a single individual. He will, in a, in a Muslim family, he'll be, or she'll be raised in a certain way. Certain doubts creep in, certain experiences they have, certain dreams they have, other things happen, and then Salvation Day comes. But they were prepared for it. And isn't that marvelous? It's marvelous. It's part of the drawing. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. And the Father's been drawing that woman or that man to Christ for years, and now you're the messenger. How exciting is that? That's awesome. So God has the power to deliver the gospel anywhere he wants in the world. And he works both sides of the equation. You see this in Acts 10 with Cornelius, right? An angel appears to Cornelius, tells him to do certain things, send messengers. Angel didn't preach the gospel, by the way. It's so funny. It's like, angel, you're right there. Send men to Joppa to get Peter. He will tell you a message by which you and your household will be saved. It's like, just do it. <laughs> but he doesn't. Peter comes with his entourage, the Jewish messenger, to the Gentile man in his home and preaches the gospel. And he hears and believes. It's beautiful. But God worked both sides of the equation. He got Cornelius ready for Peter and Peter ready for Cornelius and then got them together. And that's wonderful, isn't it? It's exciting. So he's preparing both sides and he's sovereign, delivering the gospel to the elect and working faith in them for salvation, as we've said. As Psalm 22 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. That's Psalm 22. That's the gospel to the ends of the earth. God has the power to do it. All right, so Jesus said with absolute certainty, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Luke 24 is the same. Amen. That's so good. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study this um, challenging topic. We thank you that it doesn't, like some kind of silver bullet, kill Christianity, this concept. Not at all. You've thought this whole thing through, and you've given in Scripture everything we need to answer this question. So help us to embrace the answer, to embrace our own responsibility in getting the gospel out, uh, and help us with the, in the apologetic sex, uh, um, inter interactions to be able to give good answers to people who ask us, the right answers, without being inflammatory. Um, but Lord, more than anything, help us to preach Christ crucified and resurrected. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.